We're delighted to have Bob Morrow with us this morning. And many of you, how many of you know Bob? You all know Bob? Um, Certainly been a member of Calvary for a couple of years now. And two years. And as you have read in his uh, biography, he is a psychoanalyst and a psychologist. He is a member of our healing team. And he's also a member of our Adult Spiritual Formation Committee, which has been a wonderful uh, committee to be part of and a great privilege for me. One of the things we do when we ask people to give presentations is to literally tell the story of their call. And we have a list of questions we give them, and I have had one person after the other say to me, as they were preparing for their presentation, this is a new way for me to think about what I do in the world. And we hope this will be a model for all of you as well. So what I'd like to do is, um, because the uh, prayer for this morning, the collect of the day, is particularly relevant, that I would like to say a prayer of thanksgiving for Bob and also a prayer for all of us. The Lord be with you. Let us pray. Give us grace, O Lord, to answer readily the call of our Savior Jesus Christ and proclaim to all people the good news of his salvation, that we and the whole world may perceive the glory of his marvelous works, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Bob, welcome. When the committee, through Diana, asked me last summer as we began to plan this year, my, my knee-jerk reaction was, oh no. <laughs> <laughs> Mainly because I want, what I want to talk about today is the work that I do in the world, which I'm very comfortable talking about. I've been doing this work for 40 years. It's, it's something that's second nature. But when the request was to talk about it in a way that reflects my spiritual calling, my calling as a Christian, to sort of bring those two worlds together and talk about them in some coherent, synthesized way, that's where my New York reaction came from. I know a great deal about psychoanalysis from having worked in, in psychology for over 40 years. But when it, when it came to talking about... Maybe that's the whole thing. That's it. We're not even the consulting room. There's a lot of static also. Um, so yeah, the idea of doing this in a way that would sound coherent to you, that would come out of my mouth in some way that made sense to me at the same time, was a real challenge. And so last August, when I initially said, give, what, I, what I settled into was the idea of give me some time to, to think about it, to pray about it, perhaps listen to August, really reflects the way in which my calling itself has happened. Um, 
My calling was not a St. Paul moment at all. I wasn't knocked off my horse through the bolt of lightning and all of a sudden I realized this is the work I've been called to. It's something that has occurred gradually over the course of time. And as I've thought about it over these months since last August, I realized that it really began at the beginning. And it, it, in my little bio that appeared uh, on the, in the uh, bulletin, there's a, a little quote from one of my favorites, Teilhard Chardin. Uh, in fact, I, I forgot to ask, I hope everybody's gotten the two sheets of handouts that were being circulated. There are two, one of them, uh, two pages, right? One of them uh, is copied on both sides, and one of the, uh, one of what is printed there is the prayer of Teilhard de Chardin. And it's a prayer that, and Teilhard himself, that has been particularly meaningful to me and actually reflects, I think, how my calling occurred over the course of a lifetime. Um, in the first line, above all, trust in the slow work of God. That's how my calling came. My calling came slowly. And what I have learned over time is to trust in that way in which the Lord is working with me uh, to allow me to come to the work that I do. Um, I'm going to read through it I, 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 just to capture the, 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 full, the uh, full import of it. Above all, trust in the slow work of God. We are quite naturally impatient in everything to reach the end without delay. We should like to skip over the intermediate stages. We're impatient of being on the way to something unknown, something new. And yet it is the law of all progress that it is made by passing through some stages of instability. And that it may take a very long time. And so I think it is with you, i.e. me. Your ideas mature gradually, let them grow. Let them shape themselves without undue haste. Don't try to force them on as though you could be today what time, that is to say, grace and circumstances acting on your own will will make you tomorrow. Only God could say what this new spirit gradually forming within you will be. Give our Lord the benefit of believing that his hand is leading you and accept the anxiety of feeling yourself in suspense and incomplete. So, perhaps with that as prelude, as it said, I, I, my calling really started at the very beginning. So let me tell you a little bit about my background, my personal background, and my birth family history, some of what I went through as a young kid and as an adolescent and so on. Uh, I was born in Elizabeth. I was born in Elizabeth, New Jersey, to two practicing Catholic parents. Uh, very strong in their belief, very strong in their Catholicism. They saw to it that I had a proper Catholic upbringing also. I attended uh, St. Mary's of the Assumption 
elementary school and high school in Elizabeth. In fact, my graduating class celebrated our 50th anniversary just a year ago. And in fact, just a quick note, I just want to mention Tony. One of my classmates will be here on February 5th to talk about Thomas Merton. He's uh, a Catholic priest. Uh, and, and again, he's a classmate of mine. In fact, he was my lab partner uh, in, in our in chemistry and biology. Tony and I were good friends uh, in high school and even in college. He wound up at seminary at St. Paul University, where I also attended. So Tony and I kept crossing paths. So I'm, I'm delighted to have to come But anyway, I, to get back to my story, I was, um, I went through St. Mary's Elementary School and High School. And almost from the beginning, even before probably, before I started to go to uh, attend elementary school, I, I'm one of six. I'm the oldest of six children. The next two were girls. And back in the 40s and 50s, big brothers looked out for little sisters. And my mother was very strong in the message that you take care of your little sisters. When they're around, when you're in school, if they have a problem, you look out for them, you help them, you make sure that they're taken care of. So from the beginning, the message was you take care of other people. You look out for them. When you're in trouble, you help them. So from the time I was three and four and five and six, the messages were already beginning to come in. And these are some of the things that really occur, have occurred to me since last August when I started to think about giving this talk. Where did this talk come from? Since it came slowly, this is where it started. And all through, Catholic elementary school, Catholic high school. The idea of being of service, of being a helper, of helping to see that things got done and taken care of was a message that was instilled in me um, in lots of different ways. As I went through elementary and high school, I served, church was very central to, to uh, my upbringing. Uh, I was an altar boy. I was very active in our parish. I was an altar boy in elementary school. I was in the boys' choir. Uh, and the boys started to change and then they. I was involved in student council when I was in high school. In fact, Paul was mentioning student council. There was a seminal moment that has burned itself into. Betty Ecker was the girl's name. She was a classmate of mine. Betty and I were good friends. We were part of different cliques as we were what happened in high school. We were part of different crowds. And I knew who she was. There were only 180 of us in the graduating class, and I was president of student council. So it helped to kind of know everybody. But one day, as we got near graduation, we were getting down to the end of our senior year. After school one day, Betty stopped me in the hallway. I think dismissal had already happened. It was relatively empty. And she said, I have a question for you. I had no idea what the question was if it was lost in history. But we stood there in the hallway and talked for about 15 minutes. 
and she said, I have, she addressed me with this question because I was president of student council and she had a gripe or something. I don't remember what it was. But at the end of those 15 minutes, talking to this classmate of mine who I didn't really know all that well, at the end of it, she said, oh, you know, by the way, she said, I gotta tell you, you're very easy to talk to. And that moment has stuck with me of, of all the moments at the end of my senior year of high school. That moment stuck with me. I never realized that. It was a source of feedback that I was easy to talk to. At least one person found me easy to talk to. Moments like that are significant. Moments like that tell us something. They're informative. You know, it's almost like God's way of taking Betty and putting her in the hallway. <laughs> I think God used Betty. But moments like that inform. And, and again, as I've thought about giving this talk this morning, that moment kept coming back to me. Um, so after high school, I also, one of the questions in the outline that we were asked to sort of think about, uh, one of the questions was, is, is your calling in any way related to religious life, being in religious life or something like that, I don't remember the exact wording. But I can tell you, after I graduated from high school, I entered religious life. I entered this, I became part of the uh, Zavarian Brothers, small order of teaching brothers. I had selected the Zavarian Brothers to apply to because I, by, by my junior year in high school, I knew I wanted to be a teacher. And I didn't want to get into a community that said, oh, we want you to work in the hospital. No, 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 I wanted to teach. So I found a religious order. That's all they did. They taught. They had high schools and middle schools and elementary schools. So I thought, it's a done deal. If they take me in, I'm going to teach. I don't have to worry about being assigned somewhere else. I don't know. So I entered the Zavarian Brothers and went through uh, half of the negotiate, wore the habit, changed my name. Took my religious name, Brother Bellerman. Uh, what was it? Brother, Bell Brother Bellerman. Uh, Robert Bellerman is a Jesuit, a historical, he's a Jesuit. Uh, Bellerman eventually became president of Louvain University in Belgium. Uh, went on to defend the Catholic Church against some heresies that were floating around at the time. So he was eventually canonized as a saint. But in elementary school, we were always encouraged to pick a patron saint, find a patron saint. Since I was Robert, it seemed like a natural fit. So when we, when you enter religious life, uh, nowadays it's changed. The, uh, religious tend to keep their own Christian names, given names. But at that time, back in the 60s, we were still changing names. We took a religious name. So I thought, I'll take Bellarmine. I've already attached myself to him. Um, 
And I don't want to deserve it. The last thing I need is Satan heaven. You know, feeling like I deserted and gave him up or something like that. So I kept elevating. It had been a good fit up to that point. So I figured why not. But religious life didn't work for me. After, after traveling halfway through the novitiate, I decided that um, I would leave. I felt a broader calling. Uh, I felt the need to go home. I was homesick to some extent. But anyway, I left religious life and went home, went on to Seton Hall University, uh, did my undergraduate care. <coughs> and as was the case at that time, uh, attending Catholic University, in addition to whatever you were going to major and minor with, you also took almost a major in a combination of theology and philosophy. Uh, I had decided to be a biology major. It was something I had, I had fallen in love with in high school. I loved sciences, particularly biology. And so I decided to major in biology. And so got into more and more science. And as is apt to happen oftentimes as an undergraduate, particularly in the 60s, which was a, if you remember the 60s, it was a convulsive period of time. Um, it was also during that period of time the God, of, the God is dead controversy. Anybody remembers that whole flap happened. So here I was, an undergraduate, taking theology and philosophy at the same time. The news media, popular literature, saying that God is dead. And I was taking science, so I needed proof. I needed scientific proof. So faith was a bit challenged when I was an undergraduate, as an undergraduate, until I met Chardin. Teilhard Pierre Teilhard de Chardin, a French Jesuit from the early 20th century, was a combination, combination mystic, philosopher, theologian, but he was also a scientist. He was a paleontologist. In fact, he was, he was uh, very intimately involved in the discovery and isolation of the Peking man, that stage in evolution that is often mentioned, talked about. But he did a lot of the research out in the hinterlands of, of China, Mongolia, where that, that stage of evolution was isolated. But he was also a philosopher, a mystic, um, and he talked to me, he really talked to me, because he allowed me to bring science and religion and philosophy and spirituality together. Um, we read a fair amount of his work. I, I still read about him, I still, latch on to much of what he uh, has talked about and written about. So anyway, that, those are my undergraduate days. I was a scientist in biology. Came out uh, as an undergraduate, left Seton Hall, went on to spend some time in the Peace Corps, um, came back, taught for a couple of years, but then Went back to graduate school, got a master's degree in psychology. Fell in love with psychology. Um, 
I often describe my experiences in psychology. It felt like a kidney candy store. <laughs> I didn't know what to do first. I didn't know if I wanted to teach, do research, write, do therapy, work clinically with patients. Um, but I got my degree in school psychology, a master's degree in school psych, worked for 20 years as a school psychologist. Um, but always felt a calling, a wish, to be more in private practice, doing more clinical work as opposed to a lot of testing, psychological testing, and a lot of consulting with school administrators and teachers and parents and doing that sort of work. I wanted to do therapy. I wanted to work one-on-one -on -one with patients. So while I, was, while I was working as a school psychologist in some of the public school districts in New Jersey, I went back to Fordham University, another Catholic and I was, when I graduated, I thought, I'm done with Catholic education. I'm going to Rutgers. I'm going to a secular university. Where do I wind up? I wind up at St. Paul. And then fourth, that bastion of Jesuit education. So, got my PhD in psychology from Fordham while continuing to work part-time, I'm sorry, work full-time in the public schools as a psychologist. Um, and I was doing some adjuncting at Seton Hall. I went back and they, said, they gave me some courses to teach and wound up teaching at the same time. Um, got my PhD in psychology, pursued my license. I was licensed in 1986. January, I think I passed my last oral exam in January of and went into private practice. About four years later, I felt the need to retread. <laughs> I had to go back to school. I, I had been out. I wasn't in any academic setting. I wasn't doing any real hardcore continuing education. And so around 1990, I decided that I wanted to pursue some uh, continuing education through a postdoctoral institute. So I decided, first what I did was I began my own analysis. So around 1990, I went into analysis with uh, a woman who actually had practice here in Summit at the time. And about a year later, started taking classes, started doing what we call supervision of my cases, and started to think of myself and incorporate psychoanalytic constructs in the work I was doing with patients. My first training had been more, uh, I had been trained in more of a cognitive behavioral kind of therapy. Uh, the classes I had taken, the courses, continuing ed, supervision I was getting up to that point was very cognitive behavioral. But I always had the feeling, this, this is where I think some of my calling came from. When I would sit in the room with a patient, I had the feeling that there was more going on here between the two of us than this formulaic, um, manualized way of working with patients was letting me see. If, if you know anything or have been trained or been in a therapy that is cognitive behavioral types of therapy. It's somewhat manualized, it's somewhat scripted, in other words. It's 
it's, it's much more structured. Um, and, and I don't mean to demean it. I think cognitive behavioral therapy has an enormous body of knowledge and wisdom to offer. I think it's a great body of work. I don't mean to sound like I'm slamming, I'm, I'm slamming in any way. But always there was this undercurrent that there's more going on here than, than this is letting me see. And I want to know about what that something else is. And what I realized now was the relationship that was developing between myself and the patient. And so that's what stimulated me to think I wanted to do more in terms of psychoanalysis. I wanted to understand what unconsciously was going on. What's going on outside both of our awarenesses? And so went into analysis, started doing some analytic supervision, and um, began to work that way. Eventually, within that first year, around 1990, I started taking courses, and I enrolled in a postdoctoral institute. Uh, at that time, it was known as the Institute for Psychoanalysis and Psychotherapy of New Jersey, and spent the next 11 years doing that postdoctoral program. Uh, spent seven years in change in my own analysis, three days a week on the couch, doing something. Um, different supervisors, different courses. The courses in an analytic institute are just like graduate courses. 15 weeks a semester, you meet once a week for an hour and a half. You write papers, you do a lot of reading. Any class, you just talk about the theory and your cases, and you bring all of that together. Um, I fell in love with it. I fell in love with psychoanalysis. The people that I met through my training institute, the other candidates in the program, as well as the faculty, um, were just very, very solid people. I learned a great deal about myself, too, obviously, a great deal about psychoanalysis. But you can't learn a great deal about psychoanalysis without learning a great deal about yourself. Because that's, as Freud said, you are, the analyst is the analyzing instrument. So it's about what you learn and what you bring into the consulting room. Uh, yes. I'm wondering if, um, with this Or did you have something more that you wanted to say about that? That felt like a segue to me. Um, no, I, I, I've been rambling on for. No, you're not rambling. At all. I am. I'm, I'm rambling on. I could keep doing this, but I'd love to know that I'm talking to the things that you want to hear most about. So please ask questions. Yes. Yeah. Okay, but I'll let you go on those. I have a question. You talked about relationship with the psychoanalysis, and that you wanted a greater relationship with your patients. Does that get in the way? Does the relationship can can those relationships get in the way of your professionalism? No. I would, in a word, I'll in a word, I'll just say no. Let me explain it. Um, Psychoanalytic work in particular, and I think good therapeutic work, whatever the model is, um, and I think the literature right now will bear this out, 
that good therapeutic work occurs within the relationship. I often have the feeling that <laughs> I often have the feeling that I could sit in the consulting room and talk with my patient about the weather. Not that we do, but I mean something. <laughs> Jeez, look at that snow, you believe that. Anyway, I have the feeling that we could talk about the weather but still build a relationship and the work would go on almost outside our awareness as a relationship builds. Not that, again, not that we literally talk about trivia. So, no, I think that, I think it's, a, I think it's something of a misconception that therapists, have to keep a, a very kind of emotional, professional distance and be very objective with their patients. Um, so that at the end of the session, at the end of your work day, you can turn it off. You can go home and you can keep your wits about you. Um, but I don't think that's true. Particularly with the people who are still the faculty members in the institute that I'm still very much involved with. We take it home. I don't think an analyst can do the work that they need to do without taking it in. One of, one of the, uh, an older, now deceased analyst, Wilfred Dion, talked about the analyst being a container. We take in the burdens of our patient. We take in their upsets, their, their anxieties. We take in their rage. We take, take it all in. And we go home with it. I don't go home at night and literally shut it off. If, it, if, I'm, not, if I'm not objectively, openly thinking about it, it's playing in the background. It's like when you're in, the, in a room doing some work and the radio is on over there. It's there. And so I think that in order for an analyst to do the work that they need to do, they have to let themselves be affected by the patient. That then gets folded back into the work. How I'm affected, how I feel because of the about the patient. It informs me about what their struggles are. Because what inevitably happens if the work goes well, whatever the struggle is they're having out there, in the there and then, comes right into the room and it becomes part of the here and now between them and myself. And it gets enacted in the room. And, 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 Sometimes it's a microcosmic sort of way, but it gets reenacted or it gets enacted. And it becomes part of the work. And so we can talk about the struggle that they're having there and then. We can talk about it as a here and now. And it, 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 it ratchets up. It ratchets up the power of the experience of being in analysis, in, in analytic informed, analytically informed therapy. If it, can, if it can come alive in the room between the patient and I, then it's right here. Whatever your struggle is, we're not talking about it any longer as a there and then. 
between you know you and your spouse, or you and your kids, or you or your coworkers, um, or you and your parents when you were little. We're not talking about it there and then anymore. We're talking about it here and now. It's alive in the room, and that relationship that develops with that patient around those issues. That's where the work gets done. It's about relationship. When Freud first started working, psychoanalysis was a one-person psychology. The analyst sat in a chair outside the view of the patient who lays on the couch, not seeing the analyst. And the, the, the analyst analyzed the psychodynamics of what was going on and why the patient was neurotic. And, aha, you're that way because you X, Y, Z. So, I mean, going back to your uh, Christian commitment yes. to your life and your profession, at some point, where does the uh, psychoanalysis aspect uh, that you bring to the table and that Christian spirituality come into play? I mean, does that ever get talked about in terms of you should think about bringing God in your life, or maybe you can find some kind of peace by going to church on Sunday as part of the analytical process. Great, great question. And then the other part of that would be, what about the risk of transference? <laughs> well, I mean, that's, that's the other You're side of the coin. I mean, I, I'm not trying to be rude, but it's sort of like how they can kind of come in and get that thing off undercover and then move on. And then, because they know the game as well as the psychologists have a few years They know the game. They take your notes. Yeah, so that's the short version of this question. It could stretch out. And I, I just want to, this is a fabulous question. I'm going to get a chance to answer, but I, I, I know I'm the watch person. So we've got about three minutes. So uh, it, there was one of the best of Susan had a question too. So I think the other Leonard's question, and, and I'll kind of raise my hand. I don't, to answer the first part of the question, I don't necessarily, I don't voluntarily, I don't volunteer or initiate, maybe initiate is a better word. I don't initiate discussion about religion or church or God. I watch for signals from the patient that that may be where they need to go or want to go. And if a patient wants to talk about their relationship to God or their involvement with their own church or lack of a, lack of a spirituality or religion in their life, um, I certainly will go there with them. Sometimes I will ask them, for example, if, somebody, if a patient is talking about, let's say, a recent death in their family, and they're particularly involved, I may ask them, even early in the work, during history taking, during the early sessions that we're having, when I'm getting their history, I may ask them, do you have a religious tradition that you follow? 
Or again, if, if during the session they happen to be talking about something that's particularly troubling, I may ask them a question like that. Do you, do you have a spiritual or religious life, spiritual life? Um, do you have a, you know, were you brought up in a particular religious tradition and what's your relationship with that now? Guilt is the thing that's at the core of a lot of well, a whole lot of time because guilt, I mean, to all your religion, guilt is a very necessary part of just about every religious teaching time. Absolutely. So when you've got a patient who is grasping with guilt of this, that, and the other thing, that's why I was kind of, maybe I should refine the question. Yeah, guilt is a, guilt is a feeling that is often, sometimes I can think of it as a bread and butter issue Absolutely. in analysis. Patients are often troubled by a great deal of guilt. Um, I recall a woman that I worked with many years ago, with me for about 11 years, who, uh, a woman in her 40s, fam had a family, raised kids, and so on. But at the age of 19, she had an abortion. Was still riddled with an enormous amount of guilt. No matter what I did, persuaded, we talked about it. And this had been years, this had been decades ago. I referred her to, she was raised and still, raised in Catholic tradition, was still very active in the parish. I referred her to a good friend of mine who was a Catholic priest. I asked, you know, we talked about it first. Would you like to talk to a priest? Would you like to talk to a priest who has his feet firmly planted on the ground? And we'll talk with you about it. And I did. She was very open to the idea. Uh, and I gave her my family's uh, contact information. At first, I spoke with him, and he'd be willing to speak with him. So, like two minutes.
think of our own lives.